how many of you go onto Facebook or onto social media, and when there is a controversial post, you don't even look at the post, you go straight to the comments section. Anybody do that? Like, or if you, if you have a particular strong feeling about something that was commented and you would like to comment, then the first thing you do is you go into the comments section and you start cheering on the people that basically are saying what you were feeling. Anybody do that? Right? Sometimes I just don't have the emotional virtue to get involved in the argument, so I would like vicariously live through those that have said what I wanted to say, um, and I do that with a like or something like that, or sometimes just by cheering at my computer screen. Um, and, and there are so many opinions. What you find out in this world, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether you're talking about religion, whether you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about money, whether you're talking about... Literally, I mean, you could post a picture of like a kitten and people would argue about it. Um, and there would always be some accusation of animal cruelty. Even if it's a kitten playing on the grass in like a loving home, there would be some accusation. It's the most dangerous thing you can do is post pictures of animals online. And so, so there's all these, our society sometimes just seems so crazy. But now if, all of a sudden there's this, there's this conversation that we all are having online and there are so many differing opinions, so many views, so many, and, and you know, the moment somebody throws in something academic, it's like the king of the hill, you know, until some other academic comes along and goes, you're actually just talking nonsense, and then the challenge goes, and, and, and that's kind of what it looks like in the comments section if you haven't visited for a while. Um, but the one thing that there's always more comment about than anything else is, um, is Jesus. When there is some post or um, some statement made about who Jesus is and who God is and what his heart is and what his love for us is and what he looks like and what he does and how he, how he relates to us, you will find that we live in a world that is filled with opinions. We live in a world that is filled with differing perspectives and contradictions, and, and we have so many so-called experts that have proclaimed themselves experts in a certain field and would want to um, be intolerant and, and, and to express those views in a way that would break down the arguments of others. And, and so it's this, it's this massive discussion that our world is constantly having what do we do with God? What do we do with the idea of God? Everyone is a theologian. You don't have to study to be a theologian. If you want to be one with a degree, you can be. But all of us are theologians because we all have thoughts about God. We all have ideas about God. And it's not the Bible that raises the thought about God. It's not the Bible that raises the question about God. It's our very existence it's the fact that we exist. It's the fact that we are here. It's the fact that anything exists. Why does something exist rather than nothing? And that itself raises the question about God. How did we get here? Were we created? Were we, um, have we, have we been, been created uh, by a supreme God, by a, 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 an omnipotent God who set all things into motion? Is there a prime mover that set us and all things into being? Um, and, and is there a purpose with our lives? And so, just like in those comment sections, we always have these varying ideas and beliefs and thoughts. And what we want to do here at Anchor Church is not just add a comment. We don't want to just post another misinformed comment with the idea of sparking another argument. We want to go straight to the source. We want to go straight to the scriptures and how God chose the one God who did put all things into being. He chose to reveal himself through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And that's what the book of Hebrews says, that in past times God had spoken through the prophets, and in many ways, in many different times, in many different ways, He spoke to us concerning who He is, but in these latter days, He has spoke to us completely, and, and, and the, the whole message, the full radiance of His glory has been expressed through the person of Jesus. And so we discovered in, in week one of the series that Jesus is everything God has ever wanted to say. We don't have to wonder anymore. We don't have to uh, consider the arguments in the comments section because this is not just about opinion. This is not just about perspective. This is about truth. And this is about the truth of who God is as God, the true God, who is the author of truth, who is everything that is true, how He chose to reveal Himself. And He chose to reveal Himself through the person of Jesus. So everything that contradicts the person of Jesus is untrue. It is all untrue. And everything that is who Jesus is and who Jesus said he was and that reveals the heart of God, that is the truth that we have of God. So we're not guessing about this. We're looking at God's most powerful and complete self-declaration. He chose to tell us about who he is, and he did it through his son called Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews, um, here in this, this great letter that was written, the writer of Hebrews essentially puts the audience to this task, to no longer base their walk with God and their view of righteousness on their religious heritage or upbringing. All of us have some sort of a religious upbringing, even if your religious upbringing was atheism, because atheism in itself is something that you can only undertake by faith, because you don't definitely know that there's no God, so you just, you, all you can do is believe that there's no God, which puts it in the same category of, as every other religion. Um, and so every single religious heritage that we were all raised up in different households with different homes and different backgrounds, different parents, different, different types of exposure to church and to, and to God and to Jesus, here's the, is what God wants us to do. He wants us to not base our view of God on our religious heritage or on our Old Testament ideas of holiness, or on the opinions and perspectives that we've heard from others. But this is what the book of Hebrews continually says again and again and again and again. Please listen. Please listen. Please hear. Please mix with your hearing faith. Please believe in what you hear. Slow down. Tune out the comment section. Shut the browser. Stop listening to different opinions. And listen to the one message brought by God himself in the flesh, Jesus, as the full expression, the exact imprint of his nature, and base everything that you believe about God on that expression and not on comments and perspectives and upbringing and heritage and religion. Amen? Let's look to Jesus, tune out the rest of the noise, and hear clearly who it is that God declares himself to be, to hear the one message that God uh, sent to us, not through the angels, not through a messenger, not through a prophecy, but through his own son. It's the greatest message that has ever been shared, brought by the greatest messenger that has ever been sent. God himself brought the message to us. And that's why Hebrews 1, we looked at, it says, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than one that just brought a secondhand message. He came firsthand, face to face, and he brought the message to us um, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He said, this is who God is. And that is the message. The message is that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is enough. That what he did on the cross is more than enough, that his grace is sufficient, 
that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. And that the complete work of Jesus on the cross was everything that we needed to be made right with God. It was everything that we needed to know God and to be able to enter into a relationship with Him where we can grow in knowledge of Him, not as secondhand information, but through an authentic walk with Him ourselves. The sacrifice is complete. He is the founder of our salvation, as we looked in Hebrews 2. He's the one through whom we get salvation and the originator of a new covenant, a new way of living, a new way of relating, a new way of walking with God. We don't have to live according to the Old Testament. We don't have, it doesn't mean we discard the Old Testament. We understand the Old Testament in context of the new. But we do not live and relate to God like those that lived in the Old Testament. And so it calls us, the book of Hebrews and all of Scripture, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to consider Jesus, to consider him as the high priest of our faith, the one that is the pinnacle of our faith and everything that we proclaim. And that's why Hebrews 3, verse 1 to 2, and we're moving into Hebrews 3 and 4 today. Hebrews 3 says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. This is God's invitation to us in everything that we do to consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to complete the work. He said to God, even though he faced um, major stress and uh, anxiety on the night that that he was betrayed and on the night that he was going to begin the journey to the cross, he knew what lay ahead of him. And in a moment of humanity, Jesus asked the Father, if there is any way that this cup may pass on from me, then please let it be so. But even so, not my will, your will be done. He was faithful. The Bible says that God, through Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Jesus knew that um, what he was paying a price, but that price would result in joy as God would be able to take those that were separated from him and all of us that have been separated from him through sin would be brought near. That we we would be able to be redeemed and be brought back into a relationship with God. And And so we should consider Jesus who was faithful. He was faithful. And the good news is that he remains faithful, he was faithful, and that made up for our faithlessness. Where we have been faithless, God has been faithful. He has has become our righteousness. Where we were unrighteous, he became our righteousness. So we don't have righteousness of ourselves. Any kind of righteousness that we have is self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is the same as possibly even worse than unrighteousness, right? We don't have our own righteousness. Our righteousness, our our sufficiency, it's not of ourselves, but it comes from God. He is the message, and he is everything that God wants to say to us. God wants you to know that, that you are forgiven. And we should consider Jesus not just in our Christian life, but in our everyday life. Take your normal, everyday, walking around, eating, sleeping, drinking life and consider Jesus in the midst of all of that, in your failure, in your weakness, in your struggle. He is present and His grace is sufficient. That's the good news for you this morning. Whatever you're facing, God is present and His grace is sufficient 
for whatever you may face. So today, I want to move forward. We spoke last week that we are to consider Jesus in our weakness, but today I want to go into the next part of the series with a message called Consider Jesus as Your Rest. Consider Jesus as Your Rest. We are to consider Him as the true rest, the only rest that we can find for our souls and for our heart and for our spirit. And St. Augustine said, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our heart is restless. We, God is our creator. He is our maker. He is the only one that can fulfill us. Many people have spoken about this idea of a God-shaped hole that is on the inside of all of our spirits. And there is nothing in this world, no matter how much you try and fill it, that can fill that void outside of Jesus himself. It is only God that can fulfill us, and it's only when we find our fulfillment and our worth and our significance and our future and our faith in him that we begin to feel at rest. We have all kinds of people talk about rest. People spend a lot of money going on holidays. People do everything they can to create a calm environment, and some people even read up on websites about zen and about, about you know, just how to create calm. Everybody is trying to create calm. Everybody is trying to attain peace in their hearts and in their lives. I've often thought to myself, if I could take peace and I could box it and sell it as a product, it doesn't matter what price tag I put on it, I I wouldn't have enough stock. Because people are desperate for some measure of peace in their lives. And when you don't have peace, you're constantly running around looking for it. But you're not going to find it. Because your heart will remain restless until it finds its rest in him, until we find our rest in Jesus. I'm gonna go ahead and and pray for us this morning. We're gonna get into Hebrews three and four, looking at how Jesus is our rest. Um, But let's pray together first. Lord, we thank you so much this morning that we can come to you, and at this moment, we can already begin to experience your peace. We can already begin to experience how our faith shifts from all the things that we do to try and, and, uh, and find peace in this life, to try and settle ourselves, to try and move forward. And, and we can just let go this morning, Lord God. I pray that there would be a great uh, act of faith, of letting go and just trusting in you to fulfill us, to satisfy us, uh, to give us everything that we need, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that in you we have everything we could ever have needed, that we have fulfillment and significance and worth and love and joy and a peace that transcends understanding. And we thank you, Lord God, that that would would just invade our hearts right now in Jesus' name, expel every other thing that wants to take up residency there. And God, that you would cause us to become established and rooted and grounded and secure in your love. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for how it speaks to us, encourages us, and builds us up and gives us peace. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. So if any of you have children between the ages of about three and seven, um, or if you remember from when your kids were in that age gap, you will know that driving around with small kids involves fielding literally hundreds of questions, right? Questions about every single thing that you could possibly think about. My kids, my boys are always thinking up new things to ask me. This morning, literally driving here as we stopped at church, um, Eli asked me how snails have babies, right? How do snails have babies? Have you ever wondered? Because I just thought snails are just, they're just there. You know, they're just like around. They're just kind of in the plants. That's how they appear. They just appear in the plant. Uh, But I never, how does a snail get born, right? Has anybody ever thought that question? And so 
you get asked all these questions all of the time. I get asked so many of them every single day. My boys are constantly wanting to know things. And so what I do is I just, I don't answer at first. I pretend like I didn't hear. And then I, and maybe some of you parents, I want my boys to think I know everything, right? So I don't ever want to be stumped. And so I'll just, I'll quickly Google um, how, so this morning, literally on my phone, how do snails give birth? That was my Google search this morning in the car. And it turns out they actually lay little eggs that then hatch and the shells are really soft and whatever. And so I told my boys, and they're amazed at how I know everything. Um, although Eli did once tell me when I said to him I didn't know, he said, can you Google it? So I think he's on to me. He's on to the fact that I'm getting my info somewhere else. But the point is, is that even as children, we always want to figure everything out. We're uncomfortable with mystery. We're uncomfortable with things that we don't understand, that we don't know. And it doesn't matter what we need to do. We're always trying to figure out life. We're always trying to make a plan. We're always trying to work a problem. We're always trying to get to some place where ultimately we would be in control because we have the knowledge and we have the understanding, and so we can just determine the outcome. But we, we live this way as people, always trying to find a solution to every problem, and we tend to avoid the kind of things that we cannot fix or figure out. Have you noticed that? There are some, many of us, probably all of us, run away even from areas within our own souls that we know we can't figure out or fix right away, that it's going to take some hard work and some grace and some time to sort those things out, and so we avoid them. We pretend like they don't exist. We lock things away. So we tend to avoid things we can't figure out or can't fix in an instant and figure everything else out to give ourselves this, this semblance of of, of stability in our lives and, and, and settledness and security. Um, and that's what we all are, are doing, but that often means that we're running around trying to figure out life. If you watch media and, and, and you read books and, and you look at what people are saying, there is a massive, never-ending, constant effort to figure life out. Everything is about from, from the little things to how to do small things in your home better to how to uh, have a better posturing towards life to how to achieve success to how to, well, it doesn't matter what it is, we're, we're on this, this, this search, this run, this, this journey trying to figure things out and we do that with our faith as well. The greatest temptation that we have within our faith since we, we try to figure out how to do everything in our lives well and to gain control in every area, we do the same with our faith. We try to be in control and say, well, if I just apply these disciplines and I take these steps and I work these formulas, then I will have true and good and solid Christianity that I can tick a big box and say, I've done that, I've got Christianity down. I know how it works and I can now work it and I can live it and, and I can, I can um, tell others how they should do it um, and, uh, and if they don't do it, I can judge them because I, I do it well and they don't do it well. And so we do that. We try and put ourselves um, and our religious activity and our, our human philosophies and, and programs, uh, that's essentially what makes up our Christianity. And what God is saying to us is that in all of your figuring out and running around and your religious activity and your programs and your charity and your outreaches and your connect groups and everything that you do, please would you remember to consider Jesus. Please would you remember to keep your faith in Him and not what you can do. Not in your activity or in your piety or in your prayer life or in anything else. Those are all the means to an end. The end is Jesus himself. He is the means and he is the end. He's both. He gives us the means, he gives us the faith, and he is the one in whom our faith is. Right? 
this is where scripture makes very clear that this is not just about human effort. This is not just about you being a little bit more disciplined so that you can figure out life a little bit more. This is about us completely surrendering and admitting that we would fail at life miserably if it wasn't for Jesus, that all of our human effort, none of it can produce even a, a, a hair or a, an inch or the tiniest measure of righteousness for ourselves. There's nothing that we have in our strength that can make us right with God, that can make us put us in a better place or a better position with God. So, so instead of working the problem of sin that we all have, we all struggle, we're all imperfect, we're all flawed, we all uh, lose our temper sometimes. Um, and, and in all of that, in all of our feeble attempts at discipline and, and piety and self-denial, and, and I'm gonna talk about self-denial because Colossians 2 actually talks about this. It talks about asceticism and severe bodily discipline, how people believe that you can become closer to God by treating yourself harshly and, and be, becoming ultra-disciplined. Now, discipline is good. We love and we celebrate discipline. But there is a measure, and, and Colossians 2 talks about this, where self-discipline is nothing more than another form of self-indulgence. You're actually indulging your flesh. Because you're saying, come flesh, we're good flesh, we got this flesh. You know how you psych yourself up before you go out and do something? You're like, come on, I got this, I can do this. The gospel works differently. The gospel starts with you saying, I cannot do this. There's no way I can do this. I, have, I, I would never have the strength to do this. I need a savior. That's why it's faith and not activity. Now, faith has activity, but activity isn't necessarily faith. We've got to let go and trust and rest before we can work. We've got, to, we've got to put our faith first. We've got to put our faith in the center, and then we can work. Otherwise, it's just more religious activity. And that's why it frustrates me when churches, and the church has traditionally been very bad at this, where churches preach Christianity instead of the Christ. It's all about how you are to be a Christian rather than teaching you first and foremost to put your faith in Christ and let your Christianity flow out of your relationship with him and obedience to the scriptures. So we're not here to give you another subculture or another system to work or another formula that will make you feel better about your life. We're here to tell you that you can throw all of your formulas and your systems and your structures and your self-help books away and you can put your faith in the one person who is everything God has given to us to be able to live a fulfilled, righteous life. It's all about Jesus. So in all of our religious activity and in all of our running around and in all of our human philosophies and programs, God is saying to us through the person of Jesus, would you consider Jesus as your rest? Would you consider Jesus as the end of your striving, as the end of your religion, as the end of your fear, as, of the, the, end, as the end of your your, your anxiety, of your human effort? Would you consider him the end of all of those things, which really does mean the end of yourself, right? A lot of people say we, as Christians, you know, when, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. We've all heard the, you know, the, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and all the statements of, you know, that it, it's death to self and whatever. But so many of us, in attempting to die to ourselves, are actually just resurrecting ourselves more. We're becoming more alive to our own human effort rather than understanding that real death to self means letting go. 
I can't do it. Now you're dying to yourself. Now you're being made more fully alive in Christ because you're beginning to rely on his life rather than your life. And so God asks us to consider Jesus as our rest from religion and our rest from fear and our rest from self-reliance. And he asks us, would you hear this morning the message of the gospel? Would you hear this morning the message of Jesus that he brought to us and believe in it and trust in it with all of your soul and let go? Can you let go in order to enter his rest this morning? It's available to all of us right now to let go and to enter the finished work of the cross to experience his peace flood our souls. This is the invitation of Jesus. In Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, come to me. Come to me. Not go and do, but come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. One translation says burnt out on religion. All you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. That's the offer of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. One translation says, come and walk with me, and I will teach you the unforced rhythms of my grace. God has a rhythm that he works through our life that is unforced, it's natural, it's organic, it's authentic. As we just simply rest in him, there's a rhythm that begins to develop where we are flowing with Jesus rather than fighting in our own strength. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We work hard as Christians. I mean, we work hard building the church. We, we sacrifice, we, we, we give, we, 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 you know, we use all of the energy and the time that God has given us to do something that is of value in this world, but we do it all from a place of rest. We're not striving for significance. We're not, we're not, we're not, uh, we, we, we don't lack in any kind of contentment. We don't, we, we're, we're secure, we're loved, we, we know who we are. And from that place, we can work harder than anybody else, but we don't do it as a form of striving for righteousness or significance. We do it because we know we already are righteous and significant. It changes everything about how we approach our walk with God and everything that we do. And so if you are more burdened after coming to Jesus than before, there's a problem. If you feel more burdened in your life with real condemnation and, and real guilt and real, you know, whatever it may be, it means that you probably still need to consider Jesus a little bit more because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Hebrews 3, verse 3 to 6, we're going to get into Hebrews 3 here, says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. In the first chapter of Hebrews, it says Jesus is greater than the angels. Here it tells us Jesus is greater than Moses. Poor Moses, you know, he gets to be compared to Jesus, um, which is... A tough ask, but there's something significant in this that I want to point out to you this morning. But Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much, as, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. One actually is the one building, the other one is just being built. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. God is the one who builds this house. Moses was just a part of that building. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things 
that were to be spoken later. Moses was there to testify of what would be spoken later, and we've already looked at Hebrews 1. It says that in these later times, these latter times, God has spoken through his son. So Moses was there to testify about Jesus and the gospel, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's not just a servant. He is the son of God, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we hold to the confidence of the message, in other words, we don't go back to self-reliance, trusting in our own strength, but we hold fast to what we have in Jesus. If we do that, we are literally, as Jesus builds his house, we become a part of that house. We become a part of his church, a part of his building, a part of what he is doing. In chapter one, it tells us Jesus is better than the angels. Because the angels, the word angelos means messenger, and he was not just a messenger, not just an angel, but he was the son of God who brought the final and full message of the gospel. And now it tells us that Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is the son of God. Now here's the reason why that's significant. Because Moses is the one who instituted the law. Moses is the one who, having led the people of Israel out into the wilderness, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, he went up onto Mount Sinai, and there he received the law that revealed the righteousness and the holy standard of God. And that was given to all of Israel for a purpose. And so Moses represents the law. Moses represents us relating to God through rules and through principles and through laws and through religious ceremonial uh, uh, structures that we need to follow in order to be able to relate to God. The law was instituted through Moses in the Old Testament. And some people think that we're still supposed to relate to God in that way. This is a real struggle for Christians they say, well, I'm still supposed to follow the Ten Commandments, right? I'm still supposed to, to go and, and, and read the book of Exodus and, and, and see all those things. And although it becomes awkward, have you ever tried to do that? Go and read Exodus, Exodus 20 and go, go on into Leviticus and look at the laws and you find out that you, you know, have to break a goat's neck every time there's an unsolved murder in the city. Do you think about how, think about how many goats we would kill? Uh, you know, if that was Joburg, um, we, would be in real, we wouldn't have enough goats. You have to, you, if you have a roof, you need to put a fence around your roof. It made sense back then, laws that were for the good of your neighbor, but, but now it doesn't really make sense anymore. But if, if we're going to follow the law, the Bible says, then you've got to follow the whole law. You can pick and choose your laws. And if you break one, according to, to the book of James, you break them all. You're guilty of the entire weight of 613 laws and all of their interpretations. So if you're going to live by the law and be made right by the law, if you're going to live according to Moses and Moses and his law is going to be your savior, then you better follow it, and you better follow it properly. But there's somebody greater than Moses. There's a greater way, there's a better way for us to be able to relate to God. Romans tells us that the law wasn't there to end or to cure our sin. In fact, it tells us in the book of Romans that the law could never do that. It could never fix us. The, the, the law is like, is like somebody who could diagnose the problem but couldn't actually cure it. It could only diagnose the disease of sin. It was there to make us aware of our need for grace. 
It was there to reveal the fact that we need a savior because we're such self-deceived people that if it wasn't for the law, if we didn't have some sort of a standard that we were trying to measure ourselves against, we'd all think we were good. Have you ever, I mean, you could go to literally a serial killer sitting in a prison cell awaiting the death sentence that would have killed 20 plus people and say, are you a good person? And no matter what we all say, I think, I'm, I think I'm a good person. I've made some mistakes. I've made some mistakes. I've done some things that I shouldn't have done. But in my heart, I'm a good person. Have you heard that? That's what we all say. It doesn't matter what we do. We proclaim ourselves good. But how good is good? What's the standard? What does it mean to be good? Well, here's the law of God. That's the minimum requirement for actual holiness and goodness. How many of us can follow that? Try and follow the law. C.S. Lewis speaks about this. He says, it's only the man that has tried very hard to be good that realizes how bad he actually is. You don't know the strength of the wind if you lie down. A bad person actually knows nothing about badness because they don't resist it in any way. The person that has resisted temptation for five minutes knows more about his own badness than the person that has never resisted. And the person that has resisted for an hour or for a day or for a week knows more than any time before because it's only when you try in your own strength to overcome your own sinfulness that you realize how sinful you actually are. And so if you want to know how bad you are, try hard to be good and be honest with yourself. Make all those promises that you make to God and then see if you can keep them, right? That's how, we, that's how we'll see it. But so what the law does is it actually reveals how not good we actually are. It reveals how flawed we are and, and how much we need a savior. And that is why it says that Moses, who brought the law, was only a servant testifying of things that would be spoken later. What was spoken later? The gospel, the grace of God, Jesus who came to save us from our sins. He was there to set the platform upon which we would understand that we need a savior so that when the savior arrived, we would embrace him. You can only embrace the savior when you know that you need one. And this is where the religious people, even of Jesus' day, missed the boat completely because they were so self-righteous they didn't want to submit to a savior. When you're so busy saving yourself, you won't allow anybody else to come and save you. I was reading again some Watchman Nee last night where he speaks about how a drowning man must be left to the point where he is literally exhausted. If you swim up to a person that is, that is trying to still fight in their own strength to stay afloat, they're gonna take you down with them. And so I know of some lifeguards, I've heard of some lifeguards that would swim up to people that are drowning and the first thing they do is punch them in the face. Knock them out, because then you can save them. But as long as they are kicking and screaming and scratching and clawing, you're both gonna drown. And so oftentimes, God allows us to come to the end of ourselves, the exhaustion of our own strength, the, the admission that we need help, and then he goes, finally, I can step in and I can wholeheartedly and completely save you. So we need to rest in order to be saved. That's why Moses testifies of things that were to be spoken later. Listen to this. Galatians 3.19 says, what is the purpose of the law? Why was the law given? It was given later to show us that we sin. But it was only meant to last until the coming of that descendant who was given the promise, Jesus. In fact, angels, there's the angels again, gave the law to Moses. So Jesus is greater than the angels and greater than Moses. Angels gave the law to Moses, and he gave it to the people acting as a mediator. So, so he just brought the law 
but Jesus is greater than the law. Romans 7 verse 6 says, but now we are released from the law. Everybody say released. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're not serving God according to a written code. We're living and moving and being moved by the Spirit of God, working within us, transforming us, and leading us into full and complete righteousness. In fact, the Bible says if you live according to the written code, what you're doing is stirring up sin within you. The strength of sin is in the law. So if you want to be a very strong sinner, please follow the law. That's how you're going to strengthen the rebellion within you. But if you want to be a genuinely holy, righteous Christian that can walk with God, you have to rely on Jesus to produce that within you and to live that through you. Because there's nothing good in us. So this is the new way of the Spirit. It is an authentic faith walk with God. This is where we rely on the finished work of the cross rather than in our own obedience to a written code. And let me say this, that doesn't change what is right and what is wrong. It's not as if the, the, the standard is different. It just means that we are now made right with God and therefore we find the strength in Him to actually obey the law, but not by looking at the law, by looking at Jesus. So now we become, we find that we are more loving. We're more kind. We're more generous. We're less full with ourselves, which means the Bible says that, that if you want to fulfill the law, then you should love, right? Because in love, the, all of the law is summarized in love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole law. So the more we can love, the problem is we, we're not loving. We love ourselves too much. So when Jesus transforms us, all of a sudden we begin to fulfill the law, but not by looking at the law, by looking at Jesus. Does it make sense this morning? So Jesus is greater than Moses, just so you know. He's greater than the law. He's greater than your religion. He's greater than your self-effort. And he's made us right with God as a gift. And what that does is it leads us to a place of rest. We're no longer striving. We're resting. And resting is really what it means to have faith. It's really what it means to trust. This morning I want to ask you the question, do you trust that Jesus has saved you? Do you trust that? Completely. Do you believe this morning that you are completely, 100%, perfectly righteous before God? That there is not a single thing that stands between you and His presence. Do you believe that? If you really want to honor God, you would believe it. If you really want to glorify God, you would declare Him true by believing it. Do you trust that Jesus has, has saved you? Are you living in the power of that salvation? Or are you still this morning trying to save yourself? Are you still reserving a little bit of, uh, of what can even feel like dignity for yourself? Some of us would prefer for God to punish us so that we can retain some personal dignity rather than just accepting grace because that removes me of any praise or accolade. See, that's why it's death to self. I cannot claim any single thing in my life as coming from me. Nothing. I can't claim a thing. I can only live the life that I live because of God's grace. Hebrews 3, 7 to 8 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, listen to this again, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice this morning, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts against grace. Don't harden your hearts against the gospel. He says, please listen. Please hear the message of the gospel. Hebrews 3.13 says, but exhort one another every day. Encourage one another as long as it's called today. So every day when it's called today, encourage one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that you wouldn't stop listening to the message of grace because you're so deceived by sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our confidence in what? His finished work. Don't harden your heart. Don't be deceived by your own sinfulness into thinking that it's up to you again. Keep your confidence in Jesus. He continues, Hebrews 3, verse 16, 18, and 19 says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who were the people? Who's he referring to? Those in the wilderness that heard and yet rebelled. He said, Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Those that walked out of Egypt led by Moses. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? To whom did God say that they would not be able to enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient, right? They were disobedient to God. That's why they couldn't enter the promised land. They couldn't enter his rest. What was the disobedience? Listen to this. So we see that they were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. That was the disobedience. Not stuff that they did. The stuff that they did was a result of the unbelief but it was the unbelief in their hearts that kept them from entering rest. In other words, if you hear the gospel and you don't put your faith in the gospel, you cannot experience the rest of God. You cannot walk into his peace. You cannot experience this life that God has given us because it only comes from submitting ourselves and listening and putting our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. Hebrews 4.2 says, For good news, which is what we, that's the word gospel, for good news came to us just as to them in the wilderness, just as to Israel, but the message they heard did not benefit them, it did not help them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, and it implies they're those who believed. They couldn't be united. The people of Israel could have been united in faith with us today that have faith in Jesus But because they didn't mix their hearing with faith, they couldn't be united with us. They didn't listen to the message of the the gospel. So not believing in what Jesus has done for you, not believing in the good news is disobedience. It is the source of pride. I'll do it by myself. And it's the source of all disobedience, which means we cannot enter into God's rest as long as we're running around in our own strength. This is why Israel and a whole generation died in the wilderness And even though Moses begged God, please, he stood on Mount Nebo looking out over the promised land, but could not enter even though he begged God because the law will never take you into the rest of God. You'll never enter his rest through the law. But then he goes on in Hebrews 4, and I want to end on this this morning. Hebrews 4 verse 4, it says, For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. He says in verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
And now he's talking about how do we. He says there remains a rest. Even though Israel didn't enter it because they, didn't, they weren't united with those who have faith. They didn't put their, their trust in the good news that came to them. But there remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for all of us. What is the Sabbath rest? The Sabbath rest is that God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And that's the rest that is available to us. Here's the thing about creation. If you read the book of Genesis, you'll see that God created us on the sixth day, on the last day. And so what was the first day of man's life? It was the day of rest. It was the day of rest. So we must rest in God first before we can then do what God has called us to do. Watchman Nee said this um, in his uh, book on the, called The Spiritual Man. It says, whereas God worked six days and then enjoyed his Sabbath rest, Adam began his life with the Sabbath. For God works before he rests while man must first enter into God's rest and then alone can he work. We must first enter into the rest of God before we can begin to fulfill the plan of God in our lives. And so here's the point. Colossians 2 tells us that you should let no one disqualify you or judge you according to how you observe the Sabbath because these things are just a foreshadowing of that which is to come. It was just a prophecy. It was just an illustration, this, the substance of which is Christ. In other words, whether you choose to take one day out and glorify God as a Sabbath day or whether you choose to not have a Sabbath day but consider every day a day to honor God, the Bible says in Romans 14, that's fine. And it says in Colossians 2, the substance of all of that Resting was simply to point us to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. And we don't just celebrate a Sabbath or have a Sabbath once a week. It's a good idea to have a day of rest. But we don't just have a Sabbath once a week. We live in the Sabbath. We live from the Sabbath. We work from the Sabbath. We fight from the Sabbath. Because we are in Christ in a place of rest, and through him we are able to work. So Jesus is the Sabbath. He's our rest from, from all human striving and endeavor, the rest from, from the law. He's our rest from our works. Those who have put their faith in Christ have rested from their works as God did from his. He rested, why? Because the work was finished. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. So if you're going to put your faith in Jesus, it means that you have a banner of, over your life that declares it's finished. The work is done. The work is complete. And that faith that we have in Jesus produces true rest. So he finishes in Hebrews 4, and I'm just going to read 4, 11 to 12. Listen to this. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to rest. Let's work hard at resting. so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that Israel fell under. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and of discerning the, thought, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And in Hebrews 4.3, jumping back a couple verses, it says this, Hebrews 4.3, it says, For we who have believed enter that rest. Would you consider Jesus as your rest? We who have believed, we enter that rest. So he says, be certain, church. Be intentional. Be watchful to rest. 
We don't find ourselves, because he says, if we don't listen, we'll, we'll slowly drift. Let's pay closer attention, lest we drift. What will we drift back to? Self-reliance, self-righteousness, saving ourselves, back to the law, back to religion, back to self-help. No, be diligent to rest. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. When you're getting into a mode where you're starting to operate in your own strength again, trying to figure things out, trying to make things happen, when you're tempted to do that, consider Jesus as your rest. God's word, this truth, cuts down to the divide of the soul and the spirit. In other words, that which is ours and that which comes from God. It cuts down between those two. And it says that not all activity that looks religious is from God, only that which is done in faith in his son. That's why the Bible says that everything that does not come from faith is sin, because it's in our own strength. It's self-reliance. So it cuts down. But faith in him comprises of total obedience, and that produces a lifestyle of obedience. So be diligent to rest in Jesus. And I'm, I'm just gonna throw this in here for free. But that means that we can no longer make excuses. We can no longer make excuses for sinful lifestyles. You know why? You're not a slave anymore. We read it in Hebrews 2, we're no longer slaves. So the fact that we have the grace of God and the complete work and the finished work, it doesn't mean that that means we can go and do whatever we want. If you think that way, you don't understand or know or have experienced grace yet. Because what grace declares, the Bible says in Romans, we covered this last year, is that grace has triumphed over sin. Therefore, we're no longer under sin's dominion because grace has triumphed over, over, over the law. If we were under the law and you were struggling with sin, I'd say, well, that's, yeah, sorry, that's how it works. You're not gonna get free from that. But we no longer sin. Why? Because we're under grace, which means we have been released. We're no longer slaves. So stop, um, again, this is for free, stop making excuses for why you're sinning. Stop saying it's because I'm not strong enough. Stop saying it's because my upbringing was different. Stop saying it's because I have this problem. Stop saying it's because I don't know any other way to live. You can stop whatever it is that you no longer want in your life because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So make a decision to rest in Jesus and put an end to the sin in your life that you've been running after because you're not resting in Jesus. That's why you're sinning. It's the real reason, because even in your sin, you're actually trying to save yourself. You're not gonna save yourself through self-fulfillment. You're gonna save yourself through resting in Jesus, and you'll find every bit of the satisfaction and fulfillment that you've looked for in other places, and you'll be released from a lifestyle that leads away from Jesus. So let's be diligent to rest in Jesus. It's not just wise, it's not just a luxury to rest. It is faith itself, it is obedience to God, and it is life itself to all of us. And I wanna encourage you, rest in Jesus, walk in the power that comes from that, and you will experience a new kind of freedom and life and peace and joy that you've never known before. Won't you consider Jesus as your rest? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and, and pray together this morning.